This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As children, many of us kept diaries, filled with missives that might feel trivial in hindsight, but at the time were all-consuming. First crushes, fallings out with friends, hopes for the future. Most of us fall away from the page before adulthood. As our lives become consumed by work and relationships, there's less time, or inclination perhaps, to write a diary. But 22-year-old Amelda Keenan was a writer at heart. Whether it was letters to her family members living abroad, or Christmas and birthday cards for her nephews, she never passed up an opportunity to put pen to paper. So when she vanished, in January 1994, her family hoped that her diary might contain some clues as to her whereabouts, or at the very least, offer a glimpse into her headspace in the days and weeks leading up to her disappearance. But after searching the second-floor flat she lived in, on William Street, in Waterford City, with its single bed laden with teddy bears and walls adorned with Mickey Mouse posters, Imelda's diary was nowhere to be found. Its absence, as well as the items inexplicably left behind, has puzzled those searching for her for almost three decades. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, 
a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Imelda Keenan. What I remember of Imelda was just a gentle soul, happy, always smiling, but shy to people like that she wouldn't know. So she she wouldn't just talk to anybody. You know, you'd have to sort of build up a relationship with her. And when But when you know her, you'll know her. Just a happy-go-lucky young woman that just loved life and was, you know, just really, really kind. I always call her like our gentle girl. That's the voice of Gina Kerry, Imelda's niece. Imelda was very petite, long brown hair, blue eyes, uh, gorgeous, um, gorgeous set of teeth, always took care of herself, loved her fashion. She was beautiful inside and out, do you know that sort of way? Imelda wore glasses. In fact, she could hardly see without them. She would only take them off for pictures. She was born and raised in County Leash, in the Midlands of Ireland. We were originally from Manor Lane in Mount Mellick, which is out the country, and it was a little country house. And I think there was like two bedrooms and then the sitting room kitchen in one. The bathroom was like outside sort of a thing. The cottage belonged to Gina's grandmother, Liz. Gina and her family lived in a mobile home in the yard. My granny's house, it was about 2k away from the town. Imelda came from a big family. She had eight siblings, three sisters and five brothers. There was all of them growing up um, together in that small house. But as later years went on, the family moved, you know, as they got older, Donald joined the army, Michael joined the navy, and Ger and Ned joined CIE. CIE, or Chorus Umper Erin, was the state transport authority. Ger and Ned got jobs working the railroads in Waterford in the southeast, about 90 minutes away from Mount Mellick by car. My mother and my auntie, we moved to England. Um, my other auntie, Bernadette, she worked in the factory in Mount Mellick. So that left Melda, really, and Oliver at home. But I knew that Melda, um, as soon as she got old enough, she wanted to move as well. So basically, they all flew the nest at, at, at a young age. Imelda always made sure to stay in touch with Gina's mum. Melda was a big writer. She would always write letters to my mother and correspond through letters, but she would never leave Ireland. Gina returned to Ireland twice a year. We'd come for the summer. We'd come for, like, nearly a month or more, and then maybe at Christmas. She adored visiting her relatives. All of them were very, very close, and they made my summers when I was a child coming home to see them all as a, as a one, like, together. Her aunt in particular. When we did come back, I was glued to Melda, like I would not leave her side and Melda would like look after us like we were her kids. I looked at Melda as like my cool auntie, like my best auntie. You know, we would do like mushroom picking back in the day, like playing out in the fields, jumping into the river. Melda wouldn't do any of that because she didn't want to mess her hair up. Our family were very witty and very sarcastic and they used to say, look at Melda, the banshee in the corner, always brushing her hair, but she just took so much pride in herself. Imelda preferred singing to outdoor pursuits and given the number of Keenan children that descended on Mount Melek every summer, she had everything she needed 
to put together a makeshift choir. She had us in a line, I remember, like me and my cousins all in a line, and she'd be like, with a wooden spoon, and she'd, she'd go like, do, re, mi, fa, and we'd all have to do it. And then if if I got it wrong, she like, she'd give out to me, and then we'd all have to start again. <laughs> Gina hung on her aunt's every word back in those days. But given the seven-year age difference, the conversations only got so deep. There was never any one-to-one confiding in me and anything. I think I was too young for that. I think if she did any confiding, it was with her brother. But I think she would keep her private life uh, separate from her family life. She never really talked much about what she wanted to be when she grew up. But she always talked to me about just life in general and being happy and getting married. We would talk about dreams Innocent stuff. When she turned 15, Amelda decided to move to Waterford. I think she just wanted to start up like a bit of a life. She's seen all her other siblings doing it. So I think because she she was coming to the age because she just, she wanted to do it. And the safest place to go um, would have been Waterford because she had Jared Eyre, her brother, and then she had Ned, her brother, and Michael was only in Cork, so she had her nieces and nephews down there as well. So that's where she, she, you know, she found a foundation she was going to build from that. She moved in with her brother, Jerry, but he had like four or five kids. So I don't think it suited Melda because it's a busy house she moved from. So she didn't want to move into another busy house, if you get me. So she did stay there for a while and she did go to her brother in Cork for a while as well. She did go back and forth, I think, before she found her feet in her own little place. After finishing secondary school, she moved into a bedsit on William Street, just a stone's throw away from the river shore. After passing through Waterford on its way to the sea, the shore connects with two other rivers, the Nore and the Barrow. Collectively, they're known as the Three Sisters. It was on the second floor. It was just one room with a single bed, teddy bears, Mickey Mouse pictures on the wall. By the time Gina made her first trip to Waterford to visit her aunt, Imelda had found herself a boyfriend, a man by the name of Mark. Very well kept dressed, but very quiet. You know, he did work in Waterford Crystal for a while. and Then he started up a band. Mark and Imelda were together for over four years. For the extended Keenan family, he was always something of a closed book. But then Imelda was famously shy amongst strangers too. You know, my mother did say to my uncle Ned in front of me, like, what do you think of Mark? And he said, look, Mary, if you were living with Mark for five years, I don't think you'd ever know him. Gina didn't see all that much of Mark during her visit. He wasn't living with Imelda. He would come and go. He was going between Imelda's flat and his his home place. So he he would leave us to it, like, but nice. He was nice to me. We went to the park and he bought me ice cream. We didn't know much about him, to be honest, even though he was with Imelda for so many years. Mark and Imelda got engaged. In fact, the last memory Gina has of her aunt was seeing her at a wedding. Melda's older brother, Donald, got married, and that was a big wedding. So Melda and Mark attended that, that wedding. All the family attended that wedding, and it was um, a great day. Gina and Imelda didn't cross paths very often over the next few years. 
she mostly heard about what her aunt was up to secondhand. My mother would send her pictures of us, you know, regular as well. She was just a happy-go-lucky teenager in Mount Mellick, like, you know, growing up. But I think she had to, she grew up very fast when she went to Waterford. The very last piece of correspondence Gina's mum would get from her sister was a Christmas card. All of us got the same Christmas card and she had a read and she did say in a note or whatever it was, I'll be up to put the read on Daddy's grave in January. But that wreath would never make the journey from Waterford to Mount Mellick. The 3rd of January 1994 was a Monday. Gina was just 15 years old at the time. She was alone in her grandmother Liz's house in Mount Mellick. Liz arrived home late that night. She had been out playing bingo with friends and walked in the door to find her supply of festive chocolate had been raided. My granny had a box of roses and I remember I, my granny was grey crack but I, eat, I ate all the roses on her and she came in and she wanted me a cup of tea and she went to get a rose and I only left the coffee ones in the box and she was like, where's my roses? And I was like... I ate them and she's like oh that was like not good I'm telling your mother and I was like oh please don't tell my mother and she's like I'm telling your mother and then with that as we were going through this back and forth a knock came to the door. This caught Gina and Liz off guard. It was well after midnight on a Monday after all. Who could possibly be stopping by at this late hour? There was two guards and we opened the door and she the guard said to my nanny that Imelda's missing. And my nan's face just changed. I remember looking at her in the face and, and her whole demeanour changed. Don't remember the full conversation. I just remember those words being said to her and they left her with that to take on board. And I remember being thinking to myself, oh, now she's going to forget about the roses and Melda's going to come back tomorrow and everything will be fine. Liz didn't exactly share her granddaughter's optimism. Nanny sat down and she's like, where's Melda?" And I, where is she? And I went, Nanny, she's probably gone, like, she's probably gone to a party or something. She goes, no, that's not like Melda at all. Melda wouldn't do that. Where is she? And she just, Nanny changed from that day on. She was never the same. Given her age, Gina's family kept her at arm's length when discussing Imelda's disappearance. But gradually, through snippets of hushed conversation, overheard behind closed doors, she began to piece together her aunt's last known movements. It all started earlier that day, at around 4pm, when Imelda's fiancé, Mark, paid a visit to Waterford train station, where her brother, Ned, was working. He went straight up and he said, Melda's missing. And Ned goes, what do you mean, missing? And Mark said, well, she left up between one and half one to go to get her social welfare payment and she hasn't come back. According to Mark, he had stayed over at Imelda's place the night before. So he said that Melda got up that morning, med, washed her hair, makes him to him a cup of tea and says, I'm going down to get my welfare payment and cat litter. Both of these seemed like plausible errands. Imelda had a cat named Felix that she adored and the post office trip would have been to collect her social welfare payment. Imelda didn't have a job, but she was in the middle of a computing course at the Waterford College of Further Education. After listening to Mark's panicked story, Ned checked his watch. And Ned said, but Mark, it's only half four. Give it a minute, give it a chance. But as the day went on with no sign of Imelda, 
Ned started to worry. He began turning Mark's version of events over in his head. There was something not quite right. One detail that made no sense. January the 3rd was a bank holiday. The post office would have been shut. Imelda would have known, everybody would have known that because you're you're sort of like if anybody on social welfare and is waiting for their money, they know they get a two weeks payment before Christmas and then they're like, they know what date the post office is definitely going to be open because they need to be paid. And also, Melda's apartment, Melda's flat is a seven minute walk to the post office. So even if the post office was opened, why would she leave at one, between one and half one when it doesn't open till two, it closed for lunch? So that wasn't making sense to us. And how did he know by half four she was a missing person? How would you know that? Like, he didn't live with Melda. So it's not as if he knew her routine. Like, he often went a day without seeing Melda, no contact. So how, why would he presume just because he hadn't seen her in two hours that she was missing? I can't get my head, like, I'm trying to figure out, would you not ask Ned if you've seen Melda first before you say she's missing? By that evening, Ned was at the wheel of his car, tearing through the streets of Waterford, looking for his sister. Ned was driving through red lights, trying to, you know, just panicking. He started to panic as the night went on because he knows it's not Melda's character. If Melda has a problem, she will go to Ned. Definitely Ned, you know, and if she can't get Ned, she'll go to Ger or Michael or, you know, because they are the closest to her in that area. Mark was in the passenger seat his stomach doing somersaults as Ned sped through junctions and swerved around corners. He was saying, you'd want to slow down, you know, and he's like, my sister's missing, like, we have to find her, you know, because you can't ring around, you can't put up a status because we had no internet, so you literally had to go into your car. By the following morning, the rest of the Keenan clan had arrived in Waterford to join the search party. By this point, Imelda's brother, Edward, had phoned the police to report his sister missing. They were having a many family meetings, many of days the family were sitting in a room and they were talking and what to do next and, you know, the meetings were still happening but a month was passing. I was sneaking in and listening and taking in what, the, what I could take in at the time but I, I more was there to cons- console my nanny and, and just keep giving her reassurance. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the first things the family did was pay a visit to Imelda's place. They went through every inch of it with a fine tooth comb. When they got to the flat, Imelda's belongings were still there. Her glasses, her money, her few pence that she had and her cigarettes, her bag. So she left to go to the post office with nothing, not not even her glasses which is alarm bells for us because she needs her glasses. If anything, you can walk out without your fags, but I would never walk out without my glasses. I'd probably walk into walls. Every time someone goes missing, the authorities will always explore the theory that they may have simply upped sticks and started a new life elsewhere. In Imelda's case, that particular scenario didn't seem all that likely. No one matching her description was seen leaving Waterford from the bus depot or train station. The same thing went for the port. What's more, what few possessions Imelda did have, she'd left behind. So Imelda had um, a credit union account. There wasn't much in it, but there was nothing. It was never active. Her PPS number was never active since... And also there's, the guard said they put that on red alert that if, it, if she went to another country, it'll come up on the system. And to be honest, if Melda had a dream of starting a new life in another country, my mother lived in England for 10 years. She could have come there instead of Waterford. Melda, even though she wanted to f- like have her own independence, she didn't want to be too far away from her family either. And especially, you know, Ned and her mother, you know, she, they were very close. You know, so she she never left Ireland. Another avenue of inquiry the authorities had to go down was the possibility that Imelda might have taken her own life. Mark told the authorities that his fiance had suffered from depression in the past and that she hadn't been in the best headspace at the time of her disappearance. Her brother Ned, the last member of Imelda's family to see her in person, admitted that he had seen this side of his sister before. Ned met up with her two weeks before Christmas and had a conversation with her. They had a chat and he said that she was, you know, a little bit down. Ned and Imelda got together regularly. On that particular occasion, the pair met for a drink in the Three Ships, a local pub. They would see each other nearly once a week because she would sit there and drink a glass of Guinness or a glass of whatever for the night. She wouldn't be drinking to get drunk. Imelda would rather have a glass of alcohol and get up and sing 
and dance. Her favourite one was Eternal Flame by the Bangles. It wasn't normal for them to go maybe a little bit longer, but Melda would always go to Ned, confide in Ned, that Melda would often sometimes be like saying, oh, I, I feel down today, or, you know, I'm depressed, you know, like a figure of speech thing. So whilst Imelda could be a bit melancholy during their meetups from time to time, there wasn't anything about her disposition during their last outing in mid-December that threw up a red flag. But he, it was nothing that he was worrying him. Like, I know my my uncle, and if he thought for one second that Melda was anyway suicidal or, you know, that she would do something to herself, he would bring her straight to, to Manor Lane to back home to, to her mother. Then, out of the blue, the police received a tip. There had been a sighting. A lady said that she saw Melda on the 3rd of January. She said it was around half one that she met Melda crossing over at the Tower Hotel, that she had to stop the car to let Melda cross the road. The eyewitness was a local. My understanding she worked in a surgery, a doctor's surgery. As the sighting placed Melda. Within five minutes' walk of her flat, it unfortunately had no material effect on the police's investigation. After taking statements from Mark and a couple of family members, they did sweeps of the surrounding area. This included trawling the river shore, which was less than 150 metres from Imelda's front door. Did a few laps of it with, I think it was the civil defence and the search woodland um, but then it died down, and when the when the searches died down, things people's lives went back to normal as you do. As time doesn't wait for anyone, it's my family. You know they're left with the pain and and the suffering, and it's just hard to watch. Unable to sit on their hands and do nothing, Imelda's family carried out investigations of their own. They went back to the flat, where one item in particular was noticeable for its absence: Imelda's diary. She always had a diary and she used to tell me how important it was to have a diary and you always put your write your feelings and like I remember her sitting, swinging her legs, happily writing in this diary that she'd never tell me what was in it but she bought me my first diary and it was like a little pink book with a little padlock. In her youth, her brothers had teased her for keeping one. They would just torment her and be like, we're going to read your diary. And she'd be like, no, don't touch my diary. You know, but they'd just wind her up. But like, they wouldn't get it off her. You know, she would, her hands would lock on that diary. Like, that was her personal. Melda liked her space and her privacy. And and I think that's why when she was living in a big house with everybody, um, when she she wanted to move and have her own independence and her own little space, Her family were keen to track it down, hoping it could offer up some clues about her mindset in the days and weeks before she went missing. Melda kept her private life very private. I think the only person would know about Melda's life would have been her diary. But the diary disappeared at the same time as Melda. For Ned, the one thing he found it hard to shake was the unopened Christmas presents found under Imelda's tree. I had presents for his two boys so they were going to be arranged to meet up again for Melda to give the presents to the to the boys but he never got to meet her. If Imelda had indeed gone missing on January the 3rd 
why hadn't she popped around before Christmas with the presents for her nephews as she had done for the past three years running? As far as Ned was concerned, this detail threw the whole timeline into question. You don't give kids presents in January for Santi. You give them to him before Christmas. Like, so where was she? Because my uncle Ned actually went down to her apartment at Christmas because he didn't hear from her. And he rang the doorbell and no answer. And he sat outside. He seen the light on. He sat there for two hours and he said it was dead quiet. And then he went away and he came back another night. No answer. Like he did go look for her. So I'm sorry, but we can't be fooled with she went missing on the 3rd of January. We can't accept that as a family. What's more, there were a number of incidents over the last few years that Ned could not ignore. In the years of Melda living in Waterford and she would come back up to Manor Lane, she always used to, it was often that we would see Melda on crutches or a neck brace or she'd have a bandage on her arm and I, or a sling. And I asked her, Melda, what happened? What's happening? Like, what's wrong with you? What did you do? And she says, oh, I have brittle bones. And I don't think anyone read too much into it at the time but she never said anything was wrong she just said that she had brittle bones and we thought maybe she was well maybe I did I can only speak for myself that she maybe she fell like maybe you know I didn't think now if I saw someone in this day and age in a neck brace I would be more aware of something's going on do you know but it was back then it was common for people like we because we were such a mess and family you know like if we push someone, you could hurt them, whatever. But we didn't. I it didn't take it as serious as we should have probably at the time. And I think we have that regret. As Imelda's family dug deeper, they began to realise how little they actually knew about her day-to-day life in Waterford. Imelda's um, best friend uh, at the time, um, her name was Rosie Devereaux. Rosie was a friend in, Mount, in Waterford that Melda um, got very close to her and her family and she stayed there for a while as well and as far as I know what Rosie told or what Rosie told me was everything was fine with Melda their friendship was good but when she got a boyfriend she I she did she detached from everyone so she said her, her friendship sort of faded and she she didn't see Melda as much. Imelda was also a CB radio enthusiast Citizens Band Radio is a short-range communication method that is particularly popular with minicab services and in farming communities. You can go and talk to like different people over, you know, like lorry drivers or taxi drivers. You, you can all communicate through the CB. This was a big thing in Waterford and it still is I, at this time, I think. It was Mark's hobby and Melda took it up and she was on that. So when we found out she was missing... We went on that to find out if anyone had heard from her. They all had nicknames and they just used to chat. In CB circles, Imelda went by the handle Moonlight. And all her friends that all over the world had come in and they said that they haven't heard from Imelda in, in a couple of weeks. Imelda has now been missing for close to three decades. In that time, the family hasn't had anything approaching a solid lead. There was um, a 10,000 reward put up for information. And when, when the money went up, Melda started to appear at places. The guards did say, like, they, 
they were getting phone calls. They were getting, you know, th- that was leading to nothing. They said they got a phone call. She was seen at Euston Station. Nothing came out of that. Like, we got a lot of hoax calls. Imelda's grandmother was targeted by scammers. She got a phone call one day saying that I found your daughter. She, uh, she's on the beach. And um, if you want pictures, we need you to work, send us money through Western Union. And my granny got like a fright, like, and she's like, oh my God, Melda's found. And we we're like, what? Like, I was there for that. And I was like, what? Because Melda's found and Donald was there as well. And we were like, no, this can't be true. Like, but even though 99.9% we knew it wasn't true, we still had that, like, will we just send the money just in case? Like, like you can't not ignore a lead. Things quietened down. For years, the case remained dormant. Then, in 2005, over a decade after Imelda was last seen, a man walked into a police station in Abbey Leaks, County Leash, who had an alarming story to tell. He was a grave digger who, ten years earlier, had been preparing a grave for the funeral of a man in Ballylinen Cemetery when he had come across the body of a young woman buried in a flimsy coffin. This was in 1994, the same year that Imelda had gone missing. For years he had kept this information to himself. However, all that time, part of him wondered if the mystery woman might have been Imelda. Eventually he decided that he had to tell someone and the authorities began to investigate. The grave was dug the night before for to prepare for the funeral of this gentleman the next day. And then someone went in in the middle of the night, put Melda down there, covered her up, and then the funeral went ahead. The police informed the Keenan family about this new development. Me and my auntie drove there and watched it. And we thought, oh my God, this is it. Like A forensic archeologist was brought in to lead the investigation. They recovered the woman's body, which had been wrapped in a sheet. It was not Imelda. They identified the woman from the hospital tag on her toe. She had died of natural causes, and her burial was legitimate. When we got into the car to drive away, my auntie's car cut out, and when she tried to start it, the radio came on, and Eternal Flame, the Bangles song, came onto the radio. And that's the song Melda always sang. And we two was just burst out crying. And we were just like, you know, that was sad, a sad day for us, but nothing ever came of that. The Keenan family never quite recovered from the shock of losing Imelda. At the start, we were a very, um, very close-knit family, very happy, didn't take life too seriously, very witty, sarcastic, just banter, great crack, very close. And then when Melda went missing, uh, Ned's whole demeanour changed. He felt he let her down. My nanny's life changed. It just, it it just changed everything, and it still has, you know, to this day. Gina's personal hunch about what happened to her aunt is that Imelda was murdered, and that her body was disposed of in a building site somewhere in Waterford. There was actually construction work being done at the time of her disappearance. 
I believe in my heart and soul that Melda is under a car park or a block of flats. There was a lot of building going on. And I think this is why the people who are involved can sleep at night knowing that she won't be found because she's under concrete. And I believe in my heart that's where she is. If you visit Imelda's former residence today, across the road from what used to be her front door, you'll find a plaque which reads, Always remembered, our darling daughter and sister. It's the Keenan clan's way of keeping her memory alive. Several members of Imelda's immediate family passed away without ever finding out what happened to her. Her grandmother, as well as two of her brothers, Donal and Ned, are no longer with us. For years, Ned did everything he could do to keep his missing sister's case in the public eye. Since his passing, Gina has taken on that burden. The best things in life in Formelda were free and that was just to be loved, protected, looked after, you know, someone to look after her and she didn't get it. I have pictures of her in my house on my wall and I talk about Melda and I see my my daughter in Imelda and she, she'll always be forever young and she'll always be our gentle girl, you know. I just think that if, if anyone that has any information, you know, that are prepared to go to the detectives with it or and to help us would be like much appreciated. They don't realise how small um, information can be that can turn out very big for us. You know, just to give my uncle and, and my aunties and my mother closure and bring Melda home to, her, to be buried with her parents. We don't even want justice. We don't want it. We just want her. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Imelda, or you remember seeing someone like her on January the 3rd, 1994, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Imelda Keenan before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. The series is also made with the help of Missing People, a charity who offers support to the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Gina and her family hope that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, 
You can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.